Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel 17. I don't know about you, but when I uh, pack for a trip, it seems I go through phases where I take way too much or not enough. And there's certain things that through the years you know that you want to take, that this isn't here or that isn't here, and we... Uh, we are all, invariably will say, well, whatever we forget, we know we can go to Walmart and buy it, generally, right? And sometimes you forget the very most essential things. Well, this morning, I want to talk about uh, packing, and the title of the message today is a very familiar message, is what to pack when you meet a giant. Now, we all grew up, even if you grew up just going to VBS, and uh, you didn't have a lot of involvement in church, more than likely, uh, most people are familiar with the biblical story of David and Goliath. I always have in my memory uh, my Sunday school teacher and the using of flannel graphs. How many of you remember flannel graphs, that felt art? You know, we, we're, we're, we have uh, a mission here that Sandy, we're, we're making a comeback for the flannel graphs. And you know what's interesting is kids who've been raised on technology love that little, those little flannel, flannel graphs because they can touch it and, and all. And I remember they would always have certain, you know, even as a kid, you know, you always have the whale and, and uh, you know, and Jonah and Adam and Eve. Of course, Adam and Eve were, you know, PG, you know, and their design. And, but I remember always Goliath, the big flannel graph of Goliath and and David was, you know, a little tiny flannel graph. But those are stories that we, for the most part, even just with a cursory uh, understanding or a church background, you're familiar with those, those things or parts of it. But they are real historical stories in the history and life of Israel. And this morning, I want us to look at that very familiar story, but kind of make a different approach of it uh, this morning uh, before we uh, take communion, and I hope that it'll be an encouragement to you to use the giant Goliath as a metaphor for the giants that we have in our own life. You right now may be facing some type of giant, and when I say a giant, I'm talking about something that is appearance is insurmountable. It seems that my, this giant, this thing in my life, and whatever that may be, it might be something that is health-related, financial-related, uh, family-related, a child, but it's that when I look at that giant, quote-unquote giant, I, I feel overwhelmed. It has rocked my world with this giant. Now, you know what we have always uh, said about valleys. You know, the valley also is a metaphor, a picture of going through dark uh, times, tough times. And the same is true about giants. You're either facing a giant, you're in the middle of, fa you're, you're either facing him, you're coming out of facing a giant, or you're getting ready to face one anew. Whatever it is, it seems like life is that way, like the valleys of life. You're either in it, you're coming out of it, or you're getting ready to go in one. Doesn't it seem like sometimes life feels that cycle? So this morning we want to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, and just a reminder to check your phones and make sure they're 
off so they're not beeping and texting and doing all that. That'll help uh, keep distractions down. We're a small church, so little distractions kind of uh, don't help uh, other people that are focusing and concentrating. And, uh, and me, I'm most distracted by everything sometimes. So help me. Uh, what was that movie? Help me help you. <laughs> all right. Well, First Samuel chapter 17. Now, let me just kind of review a little bit. This is not going to be on the screen. Most of the scriptures will be on the screen this morning, but let me just kind of read it. I hope you have your Bibles and your phones, tablets, however you do it. Uh, chapter 17, verse 1 says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle. Of course, this is a battle between Israel and the Philistines, and were gathered at Sokah, which, which belongs to Judah. They encamped uh, between Sokah uh, and Azekah in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines are the enemy of Israel. They are the occupants of of uh, when the, the Israelites went first time in to the promised land. It was the Philistines that were the primary occupants, and they've been battling them ever since. And verse 3 says, The Philistines, the opposing army that wanted to destroy Israel, stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And verse 4 says, And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And so, to give you a little idea, that is uh, this Goliath, some type of freak of nature giant that they estimate, based on what the Bible says, is roughly about nine feet, nine inches tall. That's a big dude. He was always first in uh, pickup basketball. Uh, I mean, I'm like, you got Goliath? Okay, we, we, we win, right? I mean, it just wasn't, uh, but he is a big man. And the Bible says that he's, the Bible calls him a champion. That's a very specific phrase that a champion uh, literally meant the man of the space between two armies. And here's what that meant, that instead of the two armies spending all their people and resources fighting each other, they would designate a strong man, a champion, that would represent both sides, and these two strong men would do the battle in the valley. And if whoever that strong man or champion won or lost, that would determine the fate of the battle. So, obviously, when you got Goliath on your team, and you're the opposing team, I remember as a kid playing basketball and always, you know, being excited till I went. And we got in the gym and saw the other team. And they always seemed bigger and taller than we were. And that was just always kind of like discouragement. Well, that's who Goliath is. He fought the battles that the others could not fight. Interesting, it says that these are Philistines. Goliath is a Philistine. He is the champion of the Philistine. And a little interesting history, by uh, a geography, is the area at where Saul, who is the first king of Israel at this time, David would follow, but Saul, th that the Philistines controlled an area they called the five cities, which was the Pentapolis, or 
the Philistine confederacy that was made up of these various cities and territories that made up this singular confederacy of a Philistine. They wouldn't really say a nation, but they all worked together. Interesting, the names of these, of this Philistine confederacy that had these different, we might would say, tribes, but they functioned as one, just like Israel had 12 tribes, but it functioned as a united army. Some of these Philistine cities were Ekron, Gath, we know that's where Goliath came from, Gath, Ashdod, uh, Ashkelon, and Gaza. Gaza. That's one of the cities. And what's interesting is that the region was called Philistia, or the land of the Philistines. And many years later, when the Greeks under Alexander were conquering all the different parts of the world, they renamed the land of the Philistines as Palestine. So that would suggest that the modern equivalent of the ethnic group Palestinians are the modern, uh, what do I say, tribe of the Philistines. Just to give you a little context there. But look in your Bibles, and it'll be on the screen, 1 Samuel 17, 26. That's the drama. That's the scenario. Actually, don't go to that verse yet. Let me just look. Let me read a couple of thoughts, uh, things here in your passage before I jump to that. Uh, that Goliath uh, defied the army of Israel, and it says in verse 10 that the Philistine Goliath said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. In other words, produce your champion. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, Goliath, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, during this time when all the armies of Israel are gathered, that, Je uh, that Jesse, he had three of his sons that were in Saul's army, and he sent the youngest son, David, to go take them some food and supplies while they were on the front lines. And so the Bible says that the three oldest sons of Jesse, in verse 13, had gone to follow Saul to the battle. And he gives the names of those. Verse 14, David was the youngest, and the three oldest sons followed Saul. David occasionally, verse 15, went and returned from Saul. This was a common thing to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem, and then he would go and take food to his brothers. In verse 16 it says, And the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening, to defy and verbally attack and challenge the nation or the army of Israel. So that's the picture there. Now, let's look at chapter 17, verse 26. And then David spoke to the men who stood by him, Listening to what Goliath was saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now there's something interesting that you see that's aroused in David 
that you don't quite see that's aroused in Saul or some of these other armies. He is, uh, he is astounded that we are going to stand around and let this enemy, this, this enemy of God's armies, defy and speak his threats. We'll jump down to verse 40. And this is the most familiar part. Then David took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had, and his sling which was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. You know, some people want to make, and like, well, why did he choose five stones? There's some that speculate that Goliath had brothers, and he figured he might as well take a, a rock for all the other four brothers that might be out there. That's kind of sketchy, so I wouldn't uh, go start a church on Goliath having brothers. But, you know, there's some suggestion of that, but I'm not convinced that was the reason. I think it's just common sense. He wanted to make sure he had enough to do the job, okay? I don't think there's anything super uh, novel about it. Uh, so this morning, I want to kind of depart you know, we like going through books of the Bible, and we're going to go through this passage, but I want to use the, uh, and the title suggests this, about uh, giants. I want to use that for illustrative purposes this morning uh, as, a, as a metaphor, as I said earlier, when we and are facing these oppositions, how are we to respond? Again, it's not physical giants that we're being threatened with. But what is that which seems unsurmountable, seems overwhelming in your life, that unless a miracle takes place, unless something happens, I'm wasted. I mean, this thing might just defeat me. And again, health, finances, it's whatever it is. You know what it is. You know what that giant is. You know, the Bible says in Romans 15.4, that the accounts and things that are written in the Old Testament are written for our benefit, for our learning. Isn't that great? I'm, I'm, I'm okay learning from somebody else's mistakes. I'd rather do that than my own. That doesn't always happen. But the Bible gives us this wealth of resource, so it is not wrong to look to these things and say, what can we learn here? How can we draw encouragement from God's Word in this story in 1 Samuel 17. And I was thinking about those five stones that he packed and picked up from the brook, put in his pouch, and thought, you know, what, what to kind of spiritualize it a little bit, what might be five stones that we need to make sure that we have as resources in our pouch when we face the giants in our life? You know, sometimes when the giants come, whatever the circumstances, they do what this giant did. They strike fear, doubt, insecurity. Does God really love me? Does He care? Um, you know, all these things begin to work at us, and we begin to question God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's love. All these things we begin to doubt. And so, if I'm going to make it, do I have the faith to trust God 
with this giant. That's what's always confronting us. And so this morning, we want to look at what is your giant. And I want you to consider some things to pack, if you will. A little simple message, but some things to pack when you face a giant, when you face your giant. Let me suggest using these five stones as just an illustration of five things to pack this morning. Number one is pack the Word of God. Pack the Word of God. Now, I don't know if they use this commercial anymore, but the old commercial for American Express was, don't leave home without it, right? Well, don't leave home without the Word of the Lord. The Word of the Lord, the Scriptures, is God's truth. It's God's will for our life. And throughout this passage... We see it implied and certainly legitimate that throughout that David understood and had a... You see, the Bible helps us to understand who God is. And David certainly had an understanding of God. And it only could come through a knowledge of the Word of God that he was uh, able to access uh, in this period of time in Israel's life. The law and the, the prophets. And, and so David, it says in verse 26, Then David, and get a sense of David and his understanding of God and his word. Then David spoke, verse 26, to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall we do, be done with this man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach, Who's, this Philistine that would defy the armies of the living God? And then he says in verse 36, Your servant, when he tells Saul, he says, Look, I've killed a lion and a bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Look, I've killed a lion and a bear with my bare hands, and this nine-foot-nine sucker is no match. I'll take him on. Now, that's confidence, right? But notice what he says. He's defied the armies of the living God. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, he's going to talk directly to the Philistine, and I want you to see that David even though he's not quoting Scripture, you see that what he's saying can only come through an understanding of God and through His Word. Then David said to Goliath, verse 45, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistine to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth, look at this, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And David said, He will give you into our hands. I don't know about you, but David's talking like somebody that knows God. That somebody has an understanding of God. And if you go back and read that, you get how incredulous he was that this Goliath is saying the things that he's saying... And nobody is challenging him. You ever feel like that in our modern church? Hello? That where is the church to speak about righteousness and about God? And the question is that when we face whatever giant 
has come into our life to speak fear and intimidation, do we have in our pouch the Word of God as a weapon, as a tool that we speak against the enemy, against the giant, to defy? We're gonna, you're going to defy God, I'm going to defy you. Because you're no match for the God of Israel. Some of you may need to have some promises to choose from. Let me suggest some smooth stones that should be on your ready speed dial of your Bible. How about Jeremiah 29.11? For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. I like that one. That tells me that God has always my best interest and that God has a plan and a purpose for my life. I may not know what it all is laid out, but God says I have a plan and I have a hope. Take hope in me. Philippians 1.6, I love this, being confident of this very thing. Some of you should write these down. You need access to these stones. Being confident of this, Paul said, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote that from jail. And he's writing confidence to the Philippians saying, I'm confident that what God began in your life, he's going to complete it and he's going to finish it. Not like some of the projects, men, we start. God finishes what he starts, right? All right, got a little little whimper there. How about this, Romans 8, 28? You need to have this in your pouch. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. All things work together for good. It doesn't mean everything that happens to us is good. Right? That's not what it's saying. But God works all things together, all the complexities for good to those who love God. And those who are called according to his purpose. And one last one is Psalm 46, verse 1 and 2. God is our refuge. And you can easily say, God is my refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. He's faster than 911. Therefore, therefore, I will not fear. I will not fear. Even though the earth be removed and mountains be carried away, you can read the rest of the psalm. Why? Because my confidence is in God. I love that Jesus had the stones and weapons of the Word of God. In Matthew 4, in that wilderness confrontation, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness and for 40 days and 40 nights, he was in a confrontation with Satan Himself. And when you read that passage, Satan was trying to attack Jesus at three different levels. He was trying to attack him and to begin to tempt him. He said, well, what kind of temptation? To tempt him to use his divine powers, if you will, in an undivine way. To use them for selfish means and selfish purposes. Look, you're hungry, Jesus. You've been fasting 40 days. Turn these stones into bread. Take matters into your own hands. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. We can short-circuit this process right now. Leap from the pinnacle of the temple. And the Bible, you know the devil knows how to quote the Bible. Not correctly, 
But he can quote Scripture to justify sin, right? And Satan says, and, and the angels, that the Psalms said that they will not let a, any harm come to you, and they will rescue you as you leap off the pinnacle of the temple, as you glide and float down, the angels will capture you, and everybody will see your glory, and you won't have to go to the cross. You won't have to go through all this suffering. You won't have to hang out with these 12 losers. And then finally, Satan says, just bow, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth. I don't know what kind of big LED screen that was, but somehow that happened. And you know what Jesus did? You know the story. Every time Satan attacked him, every time this little giant attacked and came against Jesus, what did Jesus do? He spoke the word of God. It is written. It is written. What weapon did Jesus have readily, readily available? It was the weapon, the stone, if you will, of the word of God. So make sure you pack the word of God. Secondly, make sure you pack a history book. You say, well, that seems like an odd item to pack. You see, when David was challenged to why, when Saul challenged him, when King Saul challenged David on why he was so confident against this giant from Gath, David pulled out his history book. Now you say, now where is that in the Bible? Are you using the message? No. Look right there in verse 32. And then David said to Saul, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of Goliath. Your servant, meaning himself, will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, remember David's a kid. We're not sure if how old he is, maybe old teen, 14, 15, 16. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are a youth, and he's a man of war since the time he was a youth. Like, are you nuts? And David, here he is, he opens the history book, said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard. Men, that's, that's macho. <laughs> caught it by its beard, and struck it, and killed it. And he says in verse 36, Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like see what David did? He opened the history book and he reviewed the faithfulness of God. And because of God's faithfulness, I have confidence Amen. for tomorrow. Amen. We sing, great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, thy hand has provided. Psalm 119, verse 90, your faithfulness endures to all generations 
You establish the earth and it abides. Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Psalm 36.5, a psalm of David. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. I won't look at the Scripture for time's sake, but do you remember what the Israelites did when they crossed over the Jordan? They set up, I preached on it, whenever, back. Um, They set up those stones of memorial on the other side of the Jordan. Why? They set up those stones as a memorial, as a history book, if you will, because the Lord says that when the generations to come ask you, what do these stones mean? What are you going to do? You're going to speak of God's deliverance and God's faithfulness. Pack your history book. Prone to wonder. I'd say prone to forget, the hymn hymn writer uh, wrote. We forget so easily. We forget so easily the faithfulness of God. And when you're facing a giant and are preparing to face a new one, get the history book out and review the faithfulness of God. Now, I'm not a journal keeper. I think I have a journal and I write in it once every two years. Paragraph or review. (laughs) But I write things periodically in it. But I also have other things, and I've talked about this before, that are reminders of history, God's faithfulness. You go into my office here or at home, there's things on my shelf that don't mean anything to anybody. And when I'm in heaven, you're just going to have to pack them up and do something with them, you know, because they won't mean nothing to anybody. But you know what they are? They're history lessons of God's faithfulness. I've got things written down where I had a, and I mentioned this, where I had a big financial need many times, but one in particular. And God faithfully, and I wrote down how God provided every penny for that need. God's faithfulness. And sometimes when I think that God, are you, are you there? Are you there? Then I need to open the history book and be reminded of the faithfulness of God. David opened the book and said, just like God was faithful in giving me the victory over the lion and the bear, I'm taking this guy down the same way. So take it off the shelf. Blow the dust off and remind yourself of the faithfulness of God. There's something thirdly put in your to pack, and that's the a flask of oil. And you're like, now I know that ain't in there. A flask. Now some of you don't pretend you know what a flask is. I'm not that stupid. For those of you raised in the Church of God, Cleveland, that's a jar. It just kind of trickles around there. A flask of oil. Now, what do I mean by that? Hang with me. Let me, let me, let me, let me support it this way. Oil in the Bible. Oil represents in the Bible the Holy Spirit, the anointing. For example, in Exodus 30, verse 25, the Lord says to Moses, and you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. So we see the anointing oil, part of, again, the ceremonial use of 
of Israel and for various reasons. It's also, we know, uh, symbolic, like fire is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, water, wind, all those things are metaphors, pictures, and oil is also can be a picture of the Holy Spirit. And so the anointing, let me give you a quote from R.T. Kendall, who actually has a book called The Anointing that's very good, and, uh, and he makes a few comments that are helpful. He says, the anointing is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift that functions easily when it's working. So when you hear anointing, New Testament, think gift, okay? Kind of think that. That might be helpful. The anointing is a gift that functions easily when it's working. The person who is filled with the Spirit is able to do extraordinary things, but to him or her, it seems quite natural. It's easy. That is, when it's working. In other words, when they're functioning in your, we would say New Testament, your spiritual gift, Old Testament might use the word anointing, when you're functioning, and here's, here's maybe a way to think of it, when you're functioning in that spiritual sweet spot of doing what God has blessed you to do, there's not weariness or tiresome in doing it. Why? Because that's your gift, that's your anointing, that's what, that's what energizes you. Now, some of you are energized when I'm teaching or preaching. I don't care how tired I am. I'm energized by doing that. But to sit and fill out my receipts for my credit card, that tires me. I'm not anointed, but I have to do that, right, to keep my job, right? So, so in other words, we do a lot of things that are just part of our function, but when we're walking and we're fulfilling and we feel God's wind at our back and we're doing that whether it's teaching or serving and whatever it is that's your anointing that's your gift that's where you shine that's where you work the best and we've got elders that are anointed in specific areas and leaders here that that when you walk in your anointing and the minute I say okay we need somebody in the nursery all of a sudden there's not a lot of anointing for the nursery. But we're all called to be servants, right? All right, so you're not getting out of that one. Now, keep this in mind here. Remember when Samuel, when Saul was named king over Israel? The Bible says in 1 Samuel 10:1 that Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head kissed him and said, is it, 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 is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? The Lord has anointed you. He's gifted you. He's empowered you by his spirit, we might would say, to lead his nation. 1 Samuel 24, 6. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master. David recognized the anointing on Saul's life when he had opportunity to kill him. Remember in the cave? He had an opportunity to kill him. And he said, God forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. In other words, David says, I'm not taking matters into my own hands. Even though God had promised David the kingship, he was going to let, that's why he, had a, he was a man after God's own heart, he was going to let God bring it into due season rather than trying to usurp and do it in his own methods and his own ways. And he says, I'm not going to touch God's anointing. And here's maybe a way that I've worded it, and I'll zero back in on 1 Samuel 17. 
the anointing, God, it's God's blessing and favor over that which God has designated or used in a person's life. As I said, in the New Testament, we might, it might be easier to think of it as gift or a gifting that's unique to every person, that when we operate in it, we sense God's favor, we sense a supernatural ability working in that place that He has touched, that He has anointed, that He has gifted. Okay, does that make sense? Right? All right. So now, let's get back to 1 Samuel 17, verse 38. And then I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. And then Saul, remember that they're, he's not confronted uh, Goliath yet, and Saul gave David... He says, look, you want to do this? Okay. Then Saul gave David his own armor. A bronze helmet, a coat of mail, the, 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 the coat of uh, the protection there. And David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. You ever put, guys, you know, your your clothes on your little son or something, and it just kind of looks foolish? Yes, no, yes, yes. Okay, everybody with me? Okay, all right. And it just looks silly. And I, th- I have this picture that David's standing there, you know, and he's got all this stuff on him that Saul said, you're going to need this. Saul, don't miss this, Saul was trying to put his anointing on David. Ain't going to work that way. David said, boss, this isn't me. This is not my anointing. I cannot wear this. I can't face the giant with something that's worked for somebody else. I, I can't wear this. I have to have my own armor. I've got to have my own anointing. I have to have that which I know God has blessed me. And so the giant that you and I face or are facing, I need, listen to me, I need my own gear that God has brought into my life, that God has proven, and that God has tested. I can't wear somebody else's anointing or gifting to fight the giant that's coming against me. David understood this principle that which God had blessed him in, David also knew not to step out of that blessing or anointing that God had given him. And it just reminds us of the importance of needing to walk in your own relationship with God. You can't piggyback on somebody else's relationship and faith. Yeah, we can draw encouragement for one another, and that's, that's biblical. But I'm talking about you have to walk before the Lord in your own gifting. You've got to allow God to put, his, put your personalized own armor of anointing on your life. Because if you're always borrowing from somebody else and trying to face a giant because you refuse to develop your own battle gear, if you will, you're always going to get, you're always going to get beaten. Because that's not where the anointing or blessing is. Some people think, may be true, I don't know, 
that Saul put all that on him, because we know Saul's a coward, that Saul put all that armor and garbage on him, that had David walked out there, people from afar would think, oh, look, Saul's going into battle. They'd think it was him. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I think Saul was just trying to help the kid. So you better, you better put this on. But notice, Saul said, if you're going to fight this, you're going to fight this, this giant, put, on, put, put this gear on. But see, that wasn't David's gear. What was his gear? He brought, notice he brought, he came to the battle prepared. Sometimes we're surprised when the enemy attacks us. We're not prepared. The Bible says in Ephesians to put on the spiritual armor. That's the implication is not that we're walking around in some hyper fear, a devil behind every rock. We're not talking about that. We're just saying we recognize that we are aliens in this world and that we are our enemy territory taking kingdom dominion step by step. And we got targets on our backs just like those Israeli soldiers have right now going into Gaza. You see, they are on a cleanup mission to deal with the enemy. Guess what we're doing? We're not, we're not trying to fight and win a victory. Jesus has won the victory. Look at verse 40. David's anointing was in that sling, not in Saul's armor. Notice this, verse 40. Then David took his staff in his hand. Notice this. Notice the language. Circle it in your Bible. He chose for himself. He knew what he needed. Five smooth stones. How do stones, rocks get smooth in the water? Overnight? Time. Abrasion over the elements. Pressure, whatever it is. And the smoothness, just as way the gifting and the blessing and anointing of God should mature in our life, become smooth and natural because of what? Time, experience, and testing in our life. Amen. Now, I'm not, I know some of you are, you know, gun people, right? And that's okay. But one thing that's true about owning a gun is you gotta, you got to fire it once in a while. Now, not at people. But that's why they have target ranges, you know, and, you know, and that whole thing. Because if you're not familiar with how to use a, the weapon that in the time when you might need that to defend your family, you better know how to use that thing. Or the people you're trying to protect, you might kill them. You with me? David, look what it says. He chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. He put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had. That's what he brought to the battle. What did he bring to the battle? He brought what he knew God had blessed. And he brought a sling in his hand. Know what God has called you to do. Know what your gifting is. And there's great confidence. You can't live and fight off someone else's faith. Now the fourth thing I know you're going to really question my sanity on 
The fourth thing to bring and put in your pouch is earplugs. You're like, okay, I know he's really messing with us now. I know that's not in the Bible. Even in the message, I know it's not in there. You know, one of the biggest challenges that we have as believers when we're facing the giant who's taunting and accusing day and night, day and night, is the ability to tune him out. See, the problem is those soldiers on the other side of that valley, they were listening to him talk trash day and night, day and night. And the Bible says they were full of fear, full of fear. You allow the steady diet. That's why we start with the Word of God. You allow a steady diet of the enemy relentlessly attacking, 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 fear, intimidation, failure, whatever, whatever it is, whatever the temptation du jour is of the day. Day and night. How do I turn that out? Look at our text. Verse 10 and 11. We read this earlier. The Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel. Verse 11. All Israel heard these words and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 23. Then as he talked with them, there was this champion from Gath. Goliath was his name. David heard him. All the men of Israel. Verse 24. When they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. I mean, they didn't even engage him. Saul questioned. Certainly he wasn't getting a lot of confidence from Saul. Verse 33, you're not able to do this. You're not, you can't fight this man. Look at verse 41. So the Philistine came and he began drawing near to David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, says he was disdained, he laughed. Like, is this some joke? A nine foot nine human being? I don't know how tall David was, but let's just assume he was six feet. Let's just assume he was probably not that tall as that mid at least during that period of time, tended to not be overly tall. He was he looked he, he was it was ridiculous. I remember one time in a vacation Bible school camp, I had my two sons with me, and my youngest son, Jonathan, was about four years old, and the teacher at the camp was doing this story on David and Goliath, and uh, Pastor Fred, <laughs> I remember his last name, but, and he had to be at least 6'6". And he had Dave, my son, Jonathan, come up there and stand next to him to pretend to be little David. And that's kind of the picture I have in my mind. It was just a ridiculous sight. There was no... There was no fight. There was no competition. And so he said that when he saw David, the Philistine said, uh, it says that when he looked about him and saw David, he had disdain on him. Verse 42, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good looking. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, talking trash like the enemy does in our life. You know, the Bible has an identity of the enemy called the devil, Satan. Revelation 12.10 says he is the accuser 
the accuser, the one accuses the people of God. What is an accuser? The accuser is, you're a failure. You'll amount to nothing. God doesn't love you. Don't pray that prayer. That's the 20th time you pray that this week. You think he's sick of it? I mean, the accuser is always attacking and attacking and attacking. You know what we need? We need spiritual, what? Earplugs to stop listening. If your diet is CNN and Fox and all that new, all that, after a while, guess what? You just like, like somebody's got to talk me off the wall. I mean, this is, you know, this is bad. Tune it out. I'm not saying be ignorant of what's going on. But if that is a steady stream of diet and you depend on coming in here and getting a little nibble here and there of faith in the Word of God, it doesn't work that way. You've got to be strong in your relationship with God and His Word if you're going to counteract the attacks of the enemy. This past few years, I've, I used to not travel, uh, at least to go see my kids. And uh, flying on the plane uh, about a year or so ago, I bought um, some noise-canceling headphones. If you don't know what noise-canceling headphones are, they're just different than your normal headphones. They cancel out all the excess noise. And if you're on an airplane, an airplane is, is very noisy. Just the sound, the you know, engine, and then people talking, and babies crying, the whole noise, right? And you want to watch a movie, you want to read, you want to listen to music or whatever, and you want to try to relax. you got a long flight, you got a long trip, and you put those noise-canceling headphones on, and all of a sudden it's just, oh, it's so quiet. And all you can hear is the music, or if you're watching a movie on your iPad or whatever it is, all you're getting is just the sound why? Because you have noise. Can't you use just normal headphones you buy down at Walgreens? Not going to do it. You need noise-canceling headphones. Now, here's the thing interesting. I looked up because I thought, how do those work? The noise-canceling headphones, they cancel out distractions in order to allow me to hear what I want to hear. And here's how it works. Here's the technology. They have within these headphones a built-in microphone which produces the opposite reversed sound waves to neutralize the, uh, the surrounding sound. So those headphones that are noise-canceling have something in them that receives the sound but, re but reverses it back out so you're not getting the distraction. Guess what the Word of God does? It reverses the sound waves. It reverses. As Jesus, it is written. It is written. It is written. Spiritual noise canceling to tune out the distractions around us so that we can be strong in faith. And you know what? Sometimes those distractions may be those that sometimes are closest to us. I think about Job. Remember Job? Had three friends. He had to cancel out that distraction. His wife. Now, I'm not making any marital advice here, guys. So 
I'm just talking about Job. She said, curse God and die. That's what she said. He had to hear what God said. We need to hear. We need to cancel out the distraction and hear clearly what God is saying. If we're going to face down the giant in our life. You remember in Revelation 2 and 3, there's seven churches that are there. All seven, seven of them, all seven of them begin or have seven times in those seven churches. Jesus said, this is Jesus speaking to these seven churches, unique messages. And at seven times in Revelation 2 and 3 for each church, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I like the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk said in Habakkuk, yeah, that's in the Bible, I'm not hiccuping. It's one of the minor prophets. Look it up, four chapters, powerful book. Habakkuk had some complaints he had against God, but he, he, he was praying. And in chapter 2, verse 1, we need to be like Habakkuk. It says, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart, set myself on the platform, and watch and see what He will say to me. We need to be intentionally deliberate. We pray and seek God for answers, and then we're immediately distracted because we don't have those spiritual noise-canceling earplugs, headphones put on our head to hear the clarity of God's voice. You see, when you're familiar with somebody, I gave this illustration a while back, when you're familiar with somebody, you hear their voice on the phone, one of your children call you, you don't have to say, now, 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 who, now, now who's this? Who, who is this? My boys would just hang up. Like, he's getting old. But when you don't talk with somebody, you ever have somebody call you, you have not talked to them in whenever, and they call you, and they're like, hey, Bill, how's it going? And Bill goes, great, how are you doing? And the whole time he's like, caller ID, who is this? He's pointing to Vicky. good to see you guys back. We missed you. Familiarity in prayer and the Word of God that when God speaks, you know the direction and voice of the Lord. Sometimes the reason people, and sometimes and all the time, we all need, you know, there's wisdom and multitude of counselors, so I'm not knocking anything like that. But sometimes the reason we're always seeking out other people to tell us the will of the Lord is because we don't listen for ourselves. We don't take responsibility for our own spiritual well-being and growth. Now, there's a last thing to pack. And that's a sword. When you travel, do you ever buy souvenirs where you, when you go somewhere? My wife refuses to allow me to buy one more coffee cup. We're already having to sublet another house. <laughs> She's like, oh yeah, that's what we need, another coffee cup. I said, but this is different. It's got kind of a curved 
you know, whatever or whatever. You know, a lot of times it's because it's cheap, right? Usually it's, you know, 10 bucks or less, right? Usually, sometimes. But we buy souvenirs. Well, I wouldn't say this is a souvenir, but that souvenir, what does a souvenir do? When you look at that little trinket or whatever it is, some people travel, you've got almost all 50 spoons. Maybe that's a generational thing, spoons, right? Shot glasses. Now, we know. We know they're really pencil holders for, you know, Christians, right? <laughs> but when you look at it, the Alamo, Niagara Falls, Golden you know, Gate Bridge, whatever it is, you look at it and you're like, yeah, boy, I remember that. Look at verse Samuel 17, almost done, verse 48. So it was when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Boy, what a contrast. And then David put his hand in his bag. His bag. And took out a stone. And he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and Goliath fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. No. Therefore, David ran and stood over the Philistine. Remember, they're in this valley, the two champions, if you will. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took Goliath's took his sword, not David, he took Goliath's sword. Now that had to be some big sword. But he took it out. David knocked him down before Goliath. The man couldn't even draw his weapon. David took him out. Don't miss that. And David stood over the Philistine and he took Goliath's sword out and drew it out of its sheath and killed him, cut his head with it. Kind of gruesome, but hey, it is what it is. In that culture, sadly, even today, such an act brings immediate dismay and horror to the other enemies when they see that. And it was humiliating to those Philistines to see their great champion not only defeated, but to have him, his body really desecrated by the Israelites as a defiance of victory. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, what did they do? They sent out another. No. They fled. They left. They lost. The Bible says, you can read it later in 1 Samuel 21, that David kept that sword and had access to it. And it became something of a, of a great item in history of Israel. And so what do we pack as the last thing is leave? What was that sword? I'm sure, it, again, it wasn't used a lot. It was kept as a trophy, if you will. But the sword was emblematic. It was symbolic of the great victory that God gave to Israel 
on that day. Make sure you pack the sword of victory, that you pack the, the item that is a symbol of God's victorious work that He's done. You pack and you have access of that medical report. You have access to that blank, that check that was sent, those receipts where God supernaturally defeated that giant in your life. You pull that symbol of victory, that picture of that child that everybody said there's no hope for, and now you look at that child and you see God's favor in their life. Whatever it is, you have a sword that is symbolic of the victory of God, and that is a stone that you keep in your pouch as a defiance and as a weapon against anything the enemy may trash talk you in to giving up. We're going to have communion in a minute, and you're probably thinking, what in the world does that have to do with communion? I think David's victory is a glimpse, ultimately, of coming attractions of our champion. Tony Evans writes this in his study Bible, a little note. This verse 57, in David's grisly trophy, we have a glimpse of what God promised that his Messiah would do to the serpent, the devil. Genesis 3.15, he will strike your head, speaking to the enemy. As David vanquished, defeated the giant, so Christ, the son of David, will vanquish all his enemies. That's why I said it's a preview of coming attractions, of the victory of the cross. Our sword of victory isn't a souvenir. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That's our sword of victory. And one of my favorite verses is Revelation 12, 11. Speaking of the overcomers, it says, and they overcame him, speaking of the enemy. They overcame him, how? By the blood of the Lamb, that's the cross, and the word of their testimony. What's the word of your testimony? That's the activation of the cross in your life. That's what a testimony is. That's what faith is. They overcame him. By the, you're not, you can't defeat him just by your experience. You need the blood of the Lamb. You need the winning sword of the cross, if you will. They over, how do we overcome the enemy? How do we defeat the giants? We overcome them by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony the victory of Christ at the cross. Colossians 2, last verse, in the New Living Translation, says that Christ canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away. Took it away. How? By nailing it to the cross. In this way, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by His victory over them on the cross. You know the amazing thing about David and those stones? He only needed one. He only needed one. And there may be the day all you need is one of these stones that you need to pull out. You might be Strong in the word, but you've forgotten a little history of God's faithfulness. Whatever it is, he just needed one. 
He just needed one. 